We'll take a trip, gonna take a journey, baby. We'll take a trip, gonna take a journey, baby. Five time, baby. Time to hit the road to dreamland. You're my baby. Dig in the land of night. Hold tight, baby. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Jared Cowan, and welcome to another episode of On Location. Today, we are inside one of really the most magnificent locations ever to be used in a feature film, and it's fitting that it was used in one of the best and arguably the greatest L.A. film, the late Curtis Hansen's 1997 noir masterpiece, L.A. Confidential. This location actually is perhaps the quietest location we've ever recorded in. Normally we're like on a street or somewhere where there's cars going by, but this is where trains and this is great. Um, but it, yeah, it's a private residence in the hills uh, above Los Feliz. Now, I remember seeing L.A. Confidential when it first came out in 1997. And I was in my late teens then, and I'll be honest, I didn't, I didn't really grasp everything that was going on in the movie because there's so many levels of corruption going on in this film. Uh, it's so layered and it's so rich. I really feel like about 15 years ago when I moved to L.A., there's something about living here, I think, that really gets you into it, I feel like. And I really, I think, began to understand it. You get to understand different areas of the city. You get to understand the freeway system, which of course is referenced in the film. You get to see how politics and showbiz all work together, and all that stuff helps shed new light on the film. Now before I introduce my guests and talk about the actual location, I wanted to first introduce a new member of our podcast team. Uh, a few months ago, I got an email from Ian Rutherford. Uh, he's a location professional himself, and Ian reached out via email saying he had followed the podcast from the beginning and wanted to see how he might be able to help become involved with the show. And we started talking and now Ian's helping produce the show. So thanks a lot for all of that, Ian. And welcome to the first episode for you. My, my pleasure. I'm, uh, if you told me that it would be LA Confidential, be the first one, I... I would have signed up a long time ago. Can you talk about just some of the things you've worked on? Because you are a location professional yourself. I seem to get a lot of comments from people who see La La Land. I was assistant on that. Uh, and then a small movie called Zombievers, which I did when I was very first starting. Uh, when people watch that on Netflix, I get a lot of texts. Do you, uh, do you remember the first time you saw LA Confidential and what, what resonated with you about it? Oh, I remember the theater. It was uh, Santa Clara, California. I was... Uh, I had no conception of what a uh, location scout, location manager, location department was, but I remember being so impressed by the movie, the world they created, and uh, it's, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Awesome. Well, we actually have four guests today, which I think is actually the most people I've had on one episode, which is great. My first two guests are esteemed members of a location community, uh, and they've worked together for over 25 years, I think, together. My life, right? That was the that was the first, I think. Yeah, if I went back, um, they worked on movies like Hail Caesar and you know Charlie Wilson's War, and most recently Vice. That's a really recent film for for you both. Um, I'd like to welcome location manager John Panzarella and key assistant location manager Leslie Thorson. Thanks for coming today. Hey, Jared. Just, just hold that up. Just hold that. Yeah, there hey, we go. There hey, Jared. Go. <laughs> nice to see you again. Nice to see you. I feel like we we come back around to LA Confidential every couple of years you or can't so. Can't get away from it. Does it ever get old talking about LA Confidential for you guys? No, not really. It missed the shining spot on our resumes. Yeah. We've been dining out on it for years. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like if there was an Academy Award for locations, 
LA Confidential would have been a shoe in for this for many reasons that we'll talk about. And I, I guess in general, I wanted to get your opinion on whether you think there should be an Academy Award for locations. Well, it's always nice when the production designer says something about the location manager when they're interviewed or at the Academy Awards, as it may be, or the Emmys. But a separate category, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Would you like it to happen? Not so much. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of part of the art department. Yeah. It wouldn't be a bad thing to have a location manager get recognition along with the set decorator. Along with it, right. And the designer. In that same category. That That is a good idea. Yes, and there are actually a few location managers in the guild now, a handful, I think about six. So yes, I think it would be, I agree with John, that we would like to be um, recognized along with the art department when there's a nomination for production design. Because so many times, like for example, um, the movie that actually won Best Picture instead of LA Confidential was mostly a set. And yes, <laughs> and LA Confidential was almost completely locations, very little in the way of any, there was no standing set or anything like that. Yeah. We did film it on a stage for a couple of days, but it was stage as a set. Right. Like the, like right, the badge of honor, right? Yes. That's yes. the location. Right. Exactly. About it, you know. And Janine, our esteemed production designer, Janine Opalwall, built the Victory Motel. In terms of the music... In L.A. Confidential, okay? Of course, there's the great Jerry Goldsmith, who did Chinatown, which many people consider the other great uh, L.A. movie, and those two are often grouped together. I'm wondering, as location professionals, how do you think Jerry Goldsmith handles writing music for an L.A. movie? It feels like there's a sound that he associates specifically with Chinatown and L.A. Confidential. What are your opinions on that? There's a very good similarity in the music between both films, and um, I would direct myself more towards the idea of on the Badge of Honor set when they had Jerry Mulligan and his band playing. I thought that's like, that's classic West Coast cool jazz. And I thought that was so neat that that was in the film. Jerry Goldsmith, I think, pioneered that sound of that sort of lonely trumpet sound that plays, you know, and it's it's in Chinatown. You've heard it subsequently in other noir type films. And I just feel like that really goes with where music and location actually works hand in hand. I thought it was perfect for the movie. A lot of thought went into selecting songs that sort of evoked the period, but also felt at home in the locations in which they appeared. Now, as we just touched on, you know, LA Confidential and Chinatown are often, you know, grouped together. They're both these noir films, you know, uh, getting into the greed and corruption here in the city, both, you know, period films. How do you feel the locations work differently between the two movies? I think you see a lot more of the streets in L.A. Confidential than you do in Chinatown. It's interesting when you see Chinatown, it's really kind of locked down on each location. Camera doesn't stray. Dante Spinotti is an amazing cameraman, and he really shot everything around. And when we scouted, we very specifically went to places that had reverses, that had situations where you could look up and down the street. And almost every place we went, you could look up one way and down the other. Usually you'll see them look one way or the other, not both ways. Chinatown really didn't have that. Chinatown was just locked right into specific locations. Was that a mandate? Was that something Curtis Hansen wanted? Did he want us to be able to yeah. make sure you could see, see down the, the street? See yeah. the world. Yeah. What are you, some of your favorite L.A. movies? 
Hilly Confidential. Yeah, well, I knew that. You know, I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. The big sleep. The big sleep. Um, I don't know. I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. Yeah, how about you, Lisa? Yes, you took me by surprise. Well, I told you I had to come up. We've talked about LA Confidential like two or three times before, so I want to like movies that I've worked on. um, Grand Canyon was a nice opportunity. Yeah, there's an awful lot of nice locations in that. It almost feels like LA Confidential too was made really at just the right time before mass like redevelopment and gentrification. I mean, you could not do really the stuff you did by the Formosa today. I mean, now there's a huge shopping center right next to it, you know? So it seems like that it came along really at a good time. And the scene where they did the freeway opening. Yeah. That's all gone. Right. I think that's all like a park, but like a very nice looking manicured. And there's a school right there too. Yes, that's true. Well, and our other two guests are representatives from the location uh, itself. I'd like to welcome the owner of the Level Health House, Ken Topper, and I guess all-around expert on the location and the architect, Josh Gorell. Thank you both for being here today. Pleasure to be here. I'd like to say my family owns it. I don't. Okay. I want to talk about the house, and I'm going to defer to Josh on this because Josh you you know about it probably more more so than anybody. So can you tell us a little bit about where we are today and about the architect and uh, some of the history of it? Sure. Uh, by the way, going back to favorite L.A. movies, yeah. one of my personal favorites is uh, Repo Man. I love Repo Such Man. Such a uh, small budget. You know, the funny thing about this house is that it's... Um, Well, it's not funny. It's actually brilliant in the way that it really touched on the five points of modernism that Le Corbusier was defining that was defining the international modern style at the time. Uh, It really is a machine for living, uh, like a Porsche or a Ferrari. I think people have entered this house and owned it and inhabited it and tried to do things. And like even uh, Ken's mom, Betty, she would think about things to do because you inhabit a house long enough, you want to kind of put your mark on it or change some things. But the house kind of gently slapped her on the wrist and said, not this Porsche, you can't do that. You got <laughs> you to keep it OG. And it's brilliant in that way. The steel, the stucco, the glass, there really is very little that you can do. Ironically, everyone who's purchased this house and has lived in it, I don't think actually knew what they were getting into nor actually wanted this classic, iconic, modern house. And that includes the Lovells, who really didn't know what modernism was at the time. They were paving the way and commissioning it. But ultimately like, ultimately, like you have at this house in particular, is a general dissatisfaction with what they purchased. Uh, Leah Lovell, Philip uh, Lovell's wife, didn't like the cold, modern uh, palette of the colors and the juxtapositions of raw concrete formwork that inhabited probably 40 of the exterior. Uh, And Dr. Lovell himself, who wanted all these brave new worlds of different uh, room relationships, you know, there was never bedroom one, two, or three on the plans. It was living space, living space, living space. Uh, He didn't like uh, the ultimate design uh, relationship. So the Lovells actually owned the house till 1946. Uh, Before they parted ways with the house, they did the most noticeable restoration and not restoration, remodel on the house uh, with Greg Rianne, a notable architect who uh, was great friends with Neutra and worked in the office of Richard Neutra. Um, They uh, 
got this warmth in what I call the Gregory Ain office, which was also Dr. Philip Lovell's home office upstairs in the den, uh, wrapped in Philippine mahogany and changing this uh, poignant uh, desk relationship that Lovell didn't like where his back was facing his clients as he was talking to them. So in 1946, uh, they ultimately parted ways with the house uh, and split the lot at that time, and it was sold to Edith Bland and her sister, who jointly owned the property until about 1951. Uh, not much is said about those two uh, in the way of words and or uh, construction. Uh, maybe they just, it's a tough place to live. I mean, it's gravity heat, which means there's a ball of heat in the basement and it rises. It's physics. Um, so they sold it to the Goldberg family, who I think was just another family of people that wanted to stay in the area and have their kids continue their education in the local schools. I'm sure they had some modernist desires in them, uh, but from 51 to 61, the Goldberg family owned the property. They did uh, another noticeable change, taking the sleeping porch in the master bedroom unit and converting it into a bathroom. Thusly, I think, personally, saving the original white vitrolite bathroom from ultimate destruction. Uh, using things in these houses often gets them destroyed. Money definitely helps. Uh, it's nothing short of a miracle that that 1929 white vitrolite bathroom is in almost 95% original condition. It's incredible. Uh, the Goldbergs handed the baton off to the toppers in 1961. Uh, Morton Bud Topper, Ken's father, and Betty Lou Topper, an Iowa farm girl and nurse, both, uh, he, he drove her up to the property one day when they thought they were going to look at houses in Hancock Park where she wanted to live, and uh, he told her that they now own this house. And she kind of looked at him, I, I guess, in a way that maybe a dog crooks its head a little bit, because she's like, we have four boys, and there's railless death drops abounding in this glass, steel, and uh, concrete house. Uh, but ultimately, they did move in, and uh, Bud actually grew up around the corner on Dundee Place, I believe. Uh, total Los Feliz, local to the core, played with the Lovell children in the yard growing up, and obviously jumped on this opportunity to own this house. He was a dentist, and they're often attracted to modernism. Uh, he was promptly placing the classic Mies van der Rohe Barcelona chairs in his office, as most uh, dental and banking institutions do. <laughs> Uh, and uh, the toppers have owned it ever since. Um, Betty dominantly taking care of this behemoth by herself. Uh, she was never an acclaimed architectural buff, definitely not a modern architectural buff, but she found herself firmly rooted in the lexicon of modern architecture by owning, inhabiting, and caring for this amazing, iconic structure. I wanted to jump in and... Yeah comment on what you were saying about the Lovells. It's so interesting that they really weren't into modernist architecture because I'm sure you're familiar with their beach house, which is another great modernist design. Yeah, and, and, it's and ironic. And it's funny because when you look at the pictures of the Lovells in here, the furniture was so shoddy and mismatched. I mean, no one really, especially in America, knew how to live in modernism. So it's like you yeah. commissioned this thing and you got it and then you were kind of like, okay, what do I do with it? You know? And I should say, so the location, the Lovell Health House that we are in today, was used as the home of Pierce Patchett in L.A. Confidential, played by David Strathairn. And he's the 
He's the bad. He's the he's the bad guy. He's the he's the villain. As I often say, the villains always get the architecture. That's right. That's right. Yes. And especially I mean, the modernist architecture. The modernist architecture. <laughs> and he's you know he's a sort of all around businessman. He's in, invested in uh, freeway construction, and he runs the uh, he runs Floor de Lis, the high class prostitution ring where the women are made up to look like movie stars. Sometimes even going through plastic surgery to create that image. Josh and Ken, what did you think when you first saw L.A. Confidential? Uh, I was just surprised at how good the movie was because it had unknown people, as far as I knew, who were here. Nobody knew who Russell Crowe was. Nobody knew who Guy Pearce was. And even, like, everybody around was just, like, saying, God, I hope this thing really comes together. I remember one of the producers was, like, thinking, like, this could really work. You know, and he was glad he took a chance with Curtis. And Curtis had mentioned to me, he said, you know, I had to have this place. He said, this place, it like, ties this whole thing together for me. So, I, you know, you never know when you give permission to somebody to come into your house and, and, and use it. And I think my mom, you know, certainly would be concerned on how her house was going to get portrayed. But, I, you know, all in all... I never see it as the villain. I see it as some guy that's a genius that's like looking forward, that's like look living in a place that nobody else could see the benefit of living in. And like, why are you over there? And it's like a statement <laughs> almost like Dr. Lovell had of saying like, you don't get it. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to tell you, you know. Yeah. Now, your your mom, Betty, she just passed away this past year, August, right? And yes. I, I saw her obituary at that time. And it's amazing that the house and the movie are mentioned in that the house is so entwined with the movie to the fact that it's mentioned in your mom's obituary. Did you know, did your mom like the movie? Yeah, no, she did. She liked it. Uh, you know, she said, there's so many characters. It's like hard to follow everybody, <laughs> but she really, you know, obviously she would focus on the scenes that were at her house. Right. And so, and it's the first time I think where she had a real exposure to Hollywood and how they make a movie. And, you know, it was certainly like, she goes, God, that takes so long to do one little thing. <laughs> you know, and, and so she, uh, I think, got a greater appreciation, I guess, for what ended up on the screen from seeing, seeing it actually made. It's kind of like, uh, what do they say that about uh, the, how the sausage gets, gets <laughs> <Right>. made? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> now I'm wondering, now, John, because I've talked to you before about how the house got in the film and I talked to you Ken the other day about how it ended up and some of the interactions and there's a little there's a little discrepancy I think <laughs> in there so I'm wondering John your perspective of coming to this house speaking with Betty and first did, had you tried to use this before no. LA Confidential was the first time you yeah. ever okay by far this was the choice for Pierce Patchett's house there really weren't too many alternatives we considered a couple of things but this is such an iconic and monumental piece of international architecture that it really had to be. And I just had to do everything I could to talk Betty into it because she was kind of on the fence at first. She really wasn't too keen on the idea. So I just had to be extremely persuasive. How long did you have to you know, nurture that relationship? It was probably a couple of weeks. And would you just keep coming over and just keep knocking on the door and, and, and bugging her like, we got to use your house? Pretty much. <laughs> That's much. it. Had you stayed in touch with her through the years since LA Confidential? There were a few times that we did speak after that. Um, not constantly, but, you know, 
a number of times she and I spoke about different things. Um, I think it was just general keeping in touch rather than even wanting to use it again. But now, Ken, you told me something a little different in terms of what your mom may have said that John told her when he came to to scout the house. What What is your understanding of how the whole thing well, went Well, I guess just that my mom, is, uh, you know, had more concern about raising, you know, her four boys and one girl uh, than uh, making movies or doing photo shoots or anything like that. And so there had been a parade of people that would come and say, I want to photograph your house. And then they'd photograph it. Nothing would happen. And say, you're wasting my time. Uh, you know, you make me clean it all up. Because, you know, four boys, a girl, the place is a mess. Uh, she didn't like to present it like that. And so she just decided that this wasn't something, you know, that really she was interested in doing. So it never got past a point of anybody you know, getting any farther than that. And I think she'd always come back to me and said, like, you know, these people, they're very rude. You know, they just, like, push things on me, and I tell them I'm not interested, and they push again. And But she made the statement to me, and she said, but this guy, meaning John, he's so nice. You know, I tell him no. I feel bad about saying no, (laughs) but it's because he's nice. You know, there's actually somebody nice. And so... That's my understanding is what she was telling me is that, and I believe she was telling me she was outside. I don't know, maybe she was gardening or something. She was often outside and you came walking up and she recognized him. And I I don't know if you'd been up here two or three times before in recent time span of of them, you know, approaching her. But then she said, uh, I guess in her mind, the time was right, you know that she wanted to try it, I'm sure. Everybody had moved out except me, so I was really able to access the house. So I think because it was him and he, she had sort of a relationship already there, that he was nice, and then he's like, but it took two or three times, I am understanding at now, least. of like to smooth it out uh, at the end. And I think she finally said, well, okay, I'll give it a try, but... Uh, I said, oh, no, you said yes already, is what she was telling me. And then she says, no, I'm going to stay here. He said, you know, most people would say, okay, put me up in a hotel or whatever. She didn't want any of that. She said, I'm staying here while they film. And I think you said, okay, okay, if that's what it takes. The one thing that's written in her obituary, that's actually written in there, John said he would get fired if uh, let me if, touch if, on if that. he was not allowed to use this well I, play. I I think she thought in an in an overall sense he would be lose his job and she didn't realize probably that jobs to people like John are like this one and then there's another one and then there's another one and another one uh, and to me what I told her was if you'd have known that he was go- you know they wanted it so bad you should have negotiated and she didn't you know she said she just took whatever they offered her. So uh, for that, I think you got this place for a steal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my producer's still around. He's probably very happy to hear that. (laughs) But I rarely feel as if I've stolen (laughs) a location financially. Well, (laughs) Because I always want the homeowner to be happy. I mean, more often than not, I've been criticized, I think, by producers for not driving a harder bargain and my rationale always is that if your homeowners 
feel as if they've been cheated. And I don't think Betty felt as no, if she'd been cheated. No, I'm not saying cheated. No, I'm, no. I'm saying it's relative to my knowledge now yeah. of the leverage that she had, yeah. and she didn't use it. Yeah. <laughs> Once this was put on Curtis Hansen's radar, it was like, and you can even alluded to it earlier. This was the location that he yeah. wanted. Yeah, this, this a was must a, have. a must have. What did it feel like, though, when Mrs. Topper actually said yes? Oh, relief. <laughs> Tre- tremendous relief. I, I, I don't even think she asked what it was they were going to pay. I think they just sent over a contract, and she just... No, I I'm think sh- she might can, have can had I'm, an... Can, I'm sure we talked about well, it. Well, I think she might have had an attorney look at the contract. Yeah. And there's all this paperwork. There's all this old L.A. confidential paperwork you still <laughs> well, have here. Some, some of, of it. Some of it. Yeah. Some of it. But some that's amazing. It, some of it is for a second film called Beginners. Right, Beginners, which was... 2010. 2010. Now, Leslie, I know you're mm-hmm. a fan of James Elroy, right? Mm-hmm. You're a, a fan of his novels. And you had obviously read this book before working mm-hmm. on You You were familiar with it. Uh, before... Actually getting the script, though, did the book clue you in on how much this was going to be a location-based film? Like, were you aware that it was going to be as monumental? Does the book paint that picture? Well, of course, in my mind, everything is a location. You know, right. when I'm reading it, it's I'm seeing it in my mind as a series of locations. It's a world that uh, he creates. And so I don't really think in terms of, well, this is a build. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I read a script, and that's what I think. But in reading the book, I just saw it, you know, flow through my head as as actual, you know, the world of Los Angeles. Knowing the book, and you're out scouting, did you ever feel like there was anything in conflict, just in your mind, there was anything in conflict in the book versus what actually was picked and put in the, put in the film? Not that I can think of, No. You can just chime in. Any, you can I just. Want, go. I don't want to cut you off. Are, no, are you go. having a thought? Go having a thought. <laughs> Elroy would visit the set, and Miss Thorson interacted with him quite a bit. He borrowed my phone one day. He he didn't have a cell phone. He said those cheap bastards won't pay for his cell phone. <laughs> they won't pay for my phone. So he commandeered my cell phone for the day, and uh, you know, and and then as a as a sort of a repayment, I suppose he gave me a few copies of his books, um, autographed paperbacks. Paperback. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Very generous. Yes, very good. I Uh, just want to mention that, you know, remember LA Confidential was, you know, pretty low budget movie, actually. Nobody nobody thinks about that. But when we first started scouting for it, you know, nobody had heard of Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce, as Ken mentioned, and Kevin Spacey had not been cast, Kim Basinger had not been cast, and so we're just out scouting locations with our little budget and we're trying to, you know, get the best locations we can for the amount of money that has been allocated. And then suddenly it's in variety and all the news that Kim Basinger is going to be in the movie. She's starring in the movie. And Kevin Spacey. And suddenly, when we're going around scouting and ta- talking about our low budget, everybody's just suddenly very skeptical. <laughs> skeptical saying, oh, yeah, right, uh, low budget. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. In fact, right. I got a call from the owner of Crossroads of the World, and he read me the riot act, and he wanted more money. And it's like, you know, we didn't get any more money. In fact, when you get stars as the location department, as the below the line, you get less money because more of the budget goes to them. One thing I was thinking about is a reflection of how low budget we were. There were things we wanted to do that came up 
on a couple of occasions, and this is one of them that we weren't able to do. We very, very much, well, Dante, and I thoroughly agreed with him very much at, for the night scenes, wanted to light up the Griffith Observatory. And they wanted so much money. It was mind-boggling. I think they wanted like $5,000 just to put a light on it. And the producers just would not go for it. It was really it's 50, a shame. 50000 now. Yeah, I'm sure, right. <laughs> um, and when the reverse of Lynn Bracken's house, the Ravenswood apartment building on Rossmore is in the background, and he really wanted to see that neon lit up. And again, they just wouldn't spend the money. It's really a shame. Though it's based on the novel, it feels like it really has the stamp of Curtis Hansen, right, who is an L.A. native. You really get the sense that it was made by a director who loves Los Angeles, loved Los Angeles. Did you, did you get that? Absolutely. Curtis had his head in the game of locations more than any director I've ever worked with. I mean, he was living at the beach at the time, and he'd drive into Hollywood, and he would take a different route every day. To scout, to look at places. To, to look for locations all the time. In fact, a lot of the locations were very difficult to find. And we were having a tough time finding a liquor store that we liked. And he drove up Corcoran Avenue one day between San Vicente and Pico, I guess, and came across this series of storefronts. I think it was a cane caning shop of yeah. some nature. And there was a really great dog hospital across the street from it. And he said... That's our liquor store. You see that great church in the background? And I was talking with Ian the other day. There's these great, there are a couple of great scenes with Russell Crowe with churches. And I really like, you know, up in the background. Just to stay with that particular location for a second, though, um, we went through a big hoop-de-doo with Dante in the opposite direction because like a block and a half away, there was a traffic light. And he wanted to scrim the lights because they were too bright. And you never saw it in the film, but we shot it but it got cut out. But I had to talk, what was Film LA at that time? I forget what the agency was called at that point. The IDC. Yeah, the IDC. I had to talk them into letting us scrim the traffic lights. Had you ever heard of that before? Had you no. ever done, done Nothing. scrimming traffic lights? No, that's crazy. I mean, the other thing we did, <laughs> the other thing we did all the time was because there were no double yellow lines in that at period, that time, right. we had to go out with tape or paint, if we got permission to paint, and paint the yellow lines white. I mean, wow. we, had a, we had a line item in our budget called anachronism removal. It was, and for some reason, I remember it was $40,000. <laughs> Which is nothing. <laughs> and we were constantly having to take the heads of streetlights off and put period streetlights up. Yes, we had a bucket truck that traveled with us every time we shot any exteriors. Right, and probably so like... Satellite dishes and things yes. like that and, would have to and come crime off. Bars of, and things crime, like bars, yeah. crime bars, crime yeah. bars mostly, because the satellite dishes weren't quite as prevalent then right. as they are now. But crime bars were a big thing, and it's like, oh shit, it's trash day. <laughs> 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 oh shit, there's a modern car in that driveway. Well, there were definitely yeah. some satellite dishes of some kind, or, and big ones. Or, or yes, yes, the big, big, huge ones and antennas that weren't period correct. I remember we had to do that in Long Beach, and we did the the Christmas thing. Oh, the, the Christmas house, down yes. The, yeah. I yeah. mean, that was a big search to find a place that was post-World War architecture that looked like it was still post-World War because all the foliage today is so mature, yeah. or then was so mature compared to the 50s, that you, know, you couldn't use most of those locations. Yeah, we looked at the houses in Mar Vista, 
and, uh, you know, many other different neighborhoods. So yesterday I'm driving in Burbank, and I come across the neighborhood, and I go, shit, this would have worked. (laughs) (laughs) 22 years later, yeah. Yeah. What was it like scouting with Curtis? Was he excited when you'd get to a place? What was that experience like? It was wonderful. I mean, I spent a lot of time with Janine, like incredible amount of time with Janine. But I remember when we first brought Curtis up to the oil fields where we built the Victory Motel, he was just overjoyed. You know, his eyes would just light up. It's like, you found it. (laughs) Had you ever done a movie prior that required so many practical locations? Hmm. Probably not quite so many. And it's funny, we just heard Curtis say that there were 45 locations. Mm -hmm. Feels like there were 145. Well, what's interesting is I was talking to Ian about it the other day, because we were going over some questions, and he said, it feels like there's more than 40 locations. And I said, yeah, I know, but I've actually, I mean, I know that the location list is always a work in progress, but there are 36 locations on here. And then when I actually go through the movie and count them, it's about that. And one of the unusual things back in the day was how many people were in our location department. There were three of us. We had day players help out occasionally, but there were only three of us for the run of the show. I was out of breath for four months. I mean, we went way over schedule. Do you remember how many days we went over? I don't remember. Probably nine or something like that. At least. At least. Something like that. Well, one thing that happened is, you know, because it was low budget, we had to, I mean, Curtis had to be very creative with the actors and work around their schedules. So they had other obligations, most of them. And uh, particularly, I'd say Kevin Spacey and Kim Basinger. And so many locations, we had to go back to them once or twice, you know. Yeah, even three times going back to a location. It was unusual. (laughs) But there were a couple, I mean, one stands out in my head that you were able to use one location for a number of things, specifically the Pacific Electric building. Mm. I mean, right, you... We got a lot out of that. There was a lot out of that in that building. So that... that, We were there for quite a while. It was almost like our studio. Mm -hmm. Right. But but your actual studio was where? Was it at the the lot, right? Right next to the Formosa. Formosa. Right, that's where you actually... And you can actually see a part of the building uh, in the shot. You can see where you were actually based out of. And Curtis would have a lot of meetings there. And it wasn't really... At the Formosa. Yeah. It wasn't really a studio for us, per se. I mean, it was a place where we had offices, but it's not like we had stages there or yeah. anything we like that. We shot the Badge of Honor stage there. That's the only time we were on stage. You remember it that way. I don't remember it that way. <laughs> I think we shot it at another stage. It was not there. Huh, okay. It was Hollywood Production Center, I think, because there was a big deal about how we had to get in and out of there in three days. It was my location. One of, one of, one of my locations. <laughs> I think for fans of the film, there are some real standout locations. The Lovell Health House being one of them, the Formosa, you know, the Frolic Room, you know, all these places. But I'm wondering if there's one location, whether visually or how, either that or how long it took to find it. Is there, an, is there one underappreciated location in the movie that people maybe don't always talk about but stands out for you? I've got one. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Let's hear about yours. (laughs) (laughs) The the house where Bud saves the girl who's tied down on the bed and shoots uh, the guy watching the cartoons. The upper level. um, I mean, just the geography of that was fantastic for me. I just love that location. And years later, they stuccoed it. And I was just so bummed out. But it was... Desecration. When he when he comes down the hillside and is like jumps over the hedge and into the yard, you see the pollen come off of the bushes as he jumps over it. 
And geography is is definitely very important in this film. And Ian and I were talking about that the other day, especially actually at that location. Once Bud White goes into the little living room where the guy's sitting watching cartoons and he shoots him, obviously the cops outside hear it. And out the window, you can see them running. You can see outside. You can see their reaction from way in the distance. Take the Night Owl coffee shop where it's written... He has to go to the rear, and there's a corridor, and it actually says bisects the building, and then there's the bathroom. So did you find that was, was that fairly constant, that the, the specific geography in locations that you were looking for? Ge- geography was really important, really important. I mean, for here and for just about every other location. I mean, there was a great cafe on 7th Street called the Quality Cafe, mm-hmm. and it was like period perfect, but there was no back room. There was no hallway. And so we went into a place, and it was, it was a cafe, but it was, you know, not period correct. And Janine made it period correct, and we really took quite a while to do it. And it was funny because I was looking at the shot where they come from inside the cafe, from inside the cafe into the hallway, and I was surprised they didn't shoot it looking dead into the cafe. It's actually sort of a cantilevered shot, so you're looking at the wall, so you don't necessarily know that that does connect, but it did. And then, like, to have that huge bathroom right there, it was incredible that it was all in one there. Yeah, and that's great, right? It is right across the street from your so-called studio, right? I mean, it was right across the street from the Pacific Electric Building, which which worked out. Also staying on that subject of geography, actually, Josh, when we spoke the other day, you had a really good analysis of how this location works once Bud White first arrives here and sees Pierce Patchett. And I'd love, I'd love for you to retell that. That'd be- yeah, you know, uh, Bud uh, is this, um, Pierce is basically in the yard lower on a lower plane, but in his own residency, his own world. And Bud is coming at this heightened like uh, plateau of law enforcement. So he's constantly in the shots walking down into Pierce's world. He's elevated above him. You see his feet coming down into his very lowered uh, underworld world here. Uh, and then they both, you know, finally meet at the same level on the driveway as they're talking with the uh, kind of blurred out um, Los Feliz Hills in the background. And that's where they finally start to meet eye to eye. Uh, and I, I, it's my understanding that uh, the eyes were very important to Curtis Hansen in the garage uh, closure, which uh, I was told burned out two motor garage door openers just to get that one little shot. Um, But, you know, and and also let me touch on uh, quickly um, my favorite aspects of the film, a question you asked a while ago, but I didn't get a chance to answer. Uh, As a restoration preservationist-minded individual who uh, really goes for authenticity, uh, when we restore uh, a famous house, we don't think, we just do what the genius architect wanted. And that desire is to bring that periodness into the structure itself, something that's sought after in movie development to actually make a great film. And it matters. I was reading something about the woman who directed a piece on Eileen Gray uh, when they were shooting an E1027 in the south of France. She uh, remissed about how it was going to be so sad to leave that world of the art-decorated movie set and return it back to a functioning Red Rope Museum-style occupancy. Um, so it's incredible. And, and talk about n- still looking at locations. As a restoration person, I still find myself looking at casement handles, the, the hard-to-get 
you never stop looking for it. Yeah. And that's just in restoration or I'm sure, you know, finding the right uh, location. The Souton House, which we used for the party, was a really incredible place as well. And I used it in subsequent years on a ladder project and they had taken the courtyard that you could see in the background and put a pool in there. And it's like, well, if I owned the house, I'd like to have a pool there too. But it was really sad to see that go and to see the originality of the design be corrupted that way. It's interesting talking about this changing up of the space because um, when I first started imagining us doing this here, you know, I visited a lot of locations through my writing and photographing them. And of course, I know that when you get to a certain place, uh, very often it's going to look very different because the art department is doing their, their, their craft and bringing things in and out. But for some reason in my head, this location is so tied to the movie and in my head, I thought I'd be walking into exactly how it looked in the movie with that furniture and everything in here. So when we started talking about, well, do I need to bring chairs? What's it like in here? And then Josh, you told me, well, there's actually a dining room table in there. It just like threw me off. I don't know why, but it just it just did. Well, and that's props to uh, Curtis Hansen and or the art department because uh, they actually created an alpha sofa that had been designed for the house, which the two chairs, alpha single chairs, do inhabit the space currently. Um, but uh, to, so a, as an architecture buff and a you know, as far as tying a location and actually using the great architecture the way it should be used for someone like myself, seeing the actual alpha sofa in the shot was just such mad props to the entire art directing. That area. is Janine Opawal. I mean, that is like, that will put you, you're at the top of the game for, for architects and designers with that kind of attention to detail. She used to work for Eames. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. And, and so now we do have these wonderful alpha chairs uh, that VS America recreated and licensed from Neutra. And in fact, we are sitting at a dining room table, which is a camel table Neutra designed. Uh, but ironically, we're actually now finally sitting at this dining room table in the actual dining room space which categorically and unanimously every owner that inhabited this house rejected and never put a dining room table here. So as of two weeks ago, Neutra, we're finally using your dining room. <laughs> Should we order pizza? I think so. We can get some, <laughs> sure. Uh, Josh, other than, of course, the, the stellar view that this house provides, why was this spot chosen? You know, a lot of the hillsides, as uh, L.A. became impacted and lots started to get purchased and the growth was skyrocketing, uh, the cliffside spaces were uninhabited because no one knew how to build on them. They, didn't, they couldn't put their Mediterranean, you know, revival or their colonial ambitions uh, as state houses on these hillside lots. So it was specifically a new architecture was going to be needed. And uh, Neutra learning the um, construction capabilities of a high-rise, uh, working for Hollabird and Roche in Chicago on his way out west, um, perfected this all-steel framing uh, and figured out a way to correctly anchor it into the hillside properly. Uh, this house is so strong and so well built. If it goes down in an earthquake, we have so much more to worry about. It's remarkable when you see early photographs of the house under construction or shortly thereafter. These hills are barren. Barren. No trees. None. Ken, you got some opportunity to interact with Curtis Hansen when they were shooting, right? I probably interacted more with um, Dante 
who you were mentioning, uh, as he was getting ready for his day, he would eat. He was only here two days, but he he always ate the same thing. He'd have his little bowl of cereal, uh, and then he'd be outside puffing on cigarettes. Cigars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this very stinky cigar. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It was a you know it was very much of a a point of uh, contention, I guess, that my mom did not want people smoking around the house, and she made them go out to the driveway, and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> really? Yeah. He, he would just see her coming, and he would. <laughs> <laughs> One thing Curtis Hansen did tell you is how great the house looked well, he in did. the dailies. He did say that. I guess it was in uh, day two because they'd shot one day here already. And he came back, and he said, oh, I'm so glad we're filming here and we're filming now. He says the jacarandas are in bloom and they look marvelous on the dailies. He says everybody's going to want to film at this house, is what he said. So, did that happen though? Did, did you get? Did everybody want to come no. and film here? No, <laughs> no. I mean, on one hand, from a production standpoint, you've really, really got to want to shoot here because logistically, it is not an easy place to film at all. You know, funny enough, though, uh, it's almost like after Neutra built this, he didn't really get commissions afterwards. So it's like someone's telling, oh, everybody's going to want to film here. And then you have this internationally famous modern structure in America getting the headlines from Germany to Singapore or whatever. And Neutra came back from Europe and had basically zero commissions for quite some time. Well, one thing I do want to point out is that the house, the name of the house, and the architect are actually thanked in the end credits. It's like the one location that is thanked. And that's not something you always see. So that also, I think, um, is a statement to how important this house is to LA Confidential. Leslie, I wasn't going to let you go on if you think there's an underappreciated location. <laughs> I'm coming back to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were a couple of locations that... Uh, there, one that was... Another one that, that Stephen Fisher found, and that's the uh, the house... It wasn't. It was the hideout after the shootout with the guys. Remember? Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. Actually, or was it before? No, I found that. Oh, you found it. Okay. All right. Well, he he tracked down the crazy owner though. Yeah. Yeah. James K. Yes. As I recall. Yes. Yes. He yeah. would not tell us his real last name. Oh. I found it, it was it was uh yeah it was an Armenian name. Um, but he just uh, I don't know maybe he didn't yeah. trust us with his he was, Armenian name. He was the cagiest. Name. Yes, he was very of, cagey. Of all the yes. locations. He was very, very difficult. <laughs> he was very difficult. And then the other house, the house where um, uh, Kevin Spacey goes off to his death, right? Well, that's that's kind of a kind of an interesting story, right? In that we shot the exterior on what the what are they called the Alphabet Streets over near Pasadena, but it wasn't in Pasadena. Right. It was off Huntington Drive somewhere. But where the interior was shot was the kitchen of the Souden House. Okay. So the interior, so James Cromwell's house, right? Right. Uh, right. Dudley's, Dudley's house, right? Yeah. Right, Dudley's house. So the woman who owned that house was very old, and she was basically dying of congestive heart failure. But she really wanted to do it. She really wanted the filming. <laughs> and we were worried because, you know, here's this delicate old lady, and, <laughs> and, and we didn't want to in, kill her. She had lived in the house her whole life. Yes. Yes, forever. And that it was happened, El Sereno. And that yeah. happened again with the Lefferts house. Right. The woman yeah. who lived there had lived there with her sister her entire life, and she had to be way in her 80s. And so, and so uh, our lady who owned the house actually had a birthday. And so I got her a little birthday cake from Sweet Lady Jane. 
I don't know how much of it she was able to eat, but she was very appreciative of that. But I just, I loved that house and just the fact that this woman cared so much to make us happy (laughs) that she allowed us to film in our house. Other than perhaps the Level Health House, was there any other location that Curtis just loved right off the bat? He was very excited about the frolic room. It was like, I was very reluctant to show it because it's so tiny. And when he looked at it, he was like, I just need this shot. I just need this one shot and I'm good. Let's go. And what a great shot it is, right? Because you see the lights above, those great, yeah. the great circular yeah. yes. lights above. Yes. The, the you M&Ms. see the mural, yeah, and you see the mural, the famous mural along yeah. the wall in the back. I mean, you're, you're right. He's right, though. That's all. That's all you need, right? Yeah. Just that long yeah. shot in there. Yeah, I always thought of them as lollipops. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. yeah, and then that, of course, that great low angle shot of Kevin Spacey coming out with the Pantages in the yeah. background, yeah. and it's just, I mean, Dante was nominated. Janine was nominated. Right. Curtis was nominated. What? Well, 11 nominations, I think. We just looked at that. Yeah, was it was nine. Nine. Oh. Nine. And Curtis, they won for screenplay, screenplay adapted screenplay, screenplay, right? They won. Kim Basinger won. And Kim Basinger won. That's right. I want to say to all those location people out there and, you know, anybody else in, in the industry, you film here, you win an Academy Award. <laughs> <laughs> just saying we're two for two Remember, oh, dude, we actually nice. have three academy awards two for ellie confidential one for christopher Plummer in beginners did you know that this was special when you were doing it all i knew was that i was exhausted <laughs> okay we didn't i don't think we really knew it was going to be what it is um we were hopeful and it didn't come out for a long long time what's that how long is that it was like a year and a half wasn't it mm-hmm. something like that I remember that Guy Pierce was very friendly, very personable, and I never really had any interaction with Russell Crowe other than yeah, get off that lawn. <laughs> but I saw him in the scene where he and and uh, Guy Pierce cross paths, and and um, Russell Crowe knocks the box out of Guy Pierce's hands. And when I, I watched them filming that, and I knew that no matter what happened that performance that that Russell Crowe was, you know, he had it. I mean, that, just that particular scene. So what? What are you shaking? So this is my turn. <laughs> Stenslin knocks uh-huh. the box out of his hand. Oh. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> that's true, that's true. You've really got to give Curtis a lot of credit for going the extra mile to get Guy and Russell. I mean, it was out there that De Niro really wanted to play one of the parts. And the fact that he was so well-known, Curtis just did not want to go there. You know, a great thing about shooting inside the house here is when they come down the steps into the main room, Guy Pierce goes into the side and then comes out here and they reconvene. And just that blocking is so wonderful. Essentially, where you're sitting, Ian, is where Pierce Patchett is like in the chair, dead. So before they shot that scene, they had the two Neutra chairs over here. So my mom is sitting in one. David Strathern is sitting in the other one. He's already, you know, um, got his wrists or look like he's dead here, sitting here. So my mom is sitting next to him. She looks over at him and says, what's wrong with you? (laughs) You don't look so good. And he says... Well, I'm supposed to be dead. And as quick as I'm going to say, he looks, she looks back and says, then why are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> she, that was it. She was gone. Boom. Uh, you know, and so, but this is like 
what she did when she allowed these people into her house. She made sure they knew it was her house. She hovered. She was around wherever she... And she had this knack of knowing where something was about to happen all our lives here. And like suddenly, she's just there. And, and, and she, like, she was one of a kind. And like, she was wonderful. And when we were outside, just before you mentioned something about the door. I was here because the guy was... They hadn't even started filming yet. And this guy came like two or three times... And I was like, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm the stunt guy. It's gotta, I got to kick this door. I want to, you know, make sure I'm not going to hit it too hard. And I don't want to hit the door into the, you know, into the wood in the back. And then the carpenter was standing. I said, oh, I'll take care of that. I'll build a little, you know, wedge so the door won't, won't go there. But he kicked it like two or three times. Then, actually, I think the day they shot... They didn't use him. They let the actor actually do it, and they used a different door. They put a, a, you know, a stunt door, they call it, so it will move easy instead of the actual door. And I think my mom even had asked, says, you're going to kick my door? And I think then they decided to replace it with, you know, a different door. But I wanted to, you were talking about the blocking on that scene. The actors weren't happy with the way it was, like, they were trying to figure out a reason why they were suddenly going to be running out and back up the steps. And, like, they just weren't comfortable with the way it was going. And, like, Curtis goes, like, well, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want to do? And somebody, I don't remember who, said, why don't you try tossing the keys? Yeah, and the guy that's... goes, and Curtis goes, like, yeah, that can work. Can you catch? Can you catch? <laughs> that was a good catch, too. Yeah. Good... And, and so they, they tried it. It was Russell that caught him, right, yeah. I think? And yeah. so, he was up here. I think it was, yeah, and, it goes like, and he caught it. And I don't know if he would have let him do it if he didn't catch it on the first time because he was probably like, you know, they weren't here very long. And so when they adapted something like that, and they shot it a few different times, he never dropped those keys. Yeah. I think he was like, I can't drop these keys or they won't let us do this. You know, it's a funny thing about Neutra houses and particularly the two I've had a chance to dwell in, the Coon House one and this one, Level Health House. You enter from the street and you go downstairs. People still come in here new to the house and they go, oh, we got to leave. And they're looking to go downstairs, even though you have to exit. So that must have produced something awkward in the natural relationship that most people leave to go downstairs and out of a house instead of upstairs. So you're constructing a, a shot around that. Where does the health word fit into the name of the house? Oh, that's Dr. Lovell was looking for uh, a new architecture to express all of his theories, ideations, and concepts to uh, naturopathy, uh, drugless uh, existence, vegan, raw food, uh, lots of exercise, um, hours of vitamin D absorption into the skin, epidermal layer, um, literally championing the best existence for a human being, which is in this Mediterranean climate. I mean, I, I always laugh that we water all these aesthetically pleasing plants around us when it could literally be nothing but fruits and vegetables on every single plot all over the place that everybody could just eat from, but we don't do it. So you have this this coupling of this perfect Mediterranean environment, this doctor naturopath who says your immune system and you hold the keys to longevity, and then this architect who was completely unknown with his uh, hypersensitivity towards the physiological aspects of dwelling and inhabiting a structure with texture, with color, with noise, with smell, with light, 
it was a perfect marriage that was unknown. And it was incredible. It's like, uh, I imagine it's like when Keith Richards met Mick Jagger or something, <laughs> you know? I got to say, it's a shame that your listeners cannot see the light that we're enjoying right now. The sun is starting to go down and the shadows in here are just stunning. Yeah, oh, great. It Rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> so. I can feel the vitamin D. <laughs> I think what's great too, I mean, we're talking, you're talking about the light in here and, you know, people can actually come here now and see the house, right? Ken and Josh, you started offering tours of the Level Health House. So when did you start doing that and why did you decide to start doing it? There's always been tours, uh -huh. just not um, presented in a professional manner. Uh, we started really doing that, I would say, probably in June. And it was, it's more a, a set of circumstances that were presenting themselves uh, where I had started a few, even like a couple years before that, where people would always be knocking on the door uninvited. And so it's just, as I told my mom, I said, they're, they're never going to stop coming. And so I'm going to start charging them to come in. And she said, well, you do what you want. And so, you know, I would start. I would just say, hey, look. You want to come in? It's my time. What's it worth to you? And so I didn't have a price. And I didn't care what the place looked like. You know, it was just we were here. And if you want to come in, accept it as it is. But I've got a greater appreciation for why somebody wants to come here now. And so when Josh kind of came on the scene again, it just uh, clicked in my mind. And I asked my mom, I said, you know, we can really make this thing more of a business than it, than it pre ever had been. It just had been your, your, her home. And so because it was only me here and her, and, uh, you know, she said, yeah, let's give that a try. These windows had not been cleaned since Ellie Confidential did it, which was a process into itself. Yes, I mean, indeed. They built scaffolding around this place, and they spent longer cleaning the windows than they did filming here. To, to do it right, like Josh said, the people have to see the house as it was meant to be seen. And to do that, you, you're seeing it now, you know, as it is, uh, where to me, you can't really just live in it, you know, in a normal manner. I mean, this is a difficult place to live if you want to present it. We're more emphasizing presenting it now. And, and I want to emphasize to people, this is your chance. You know, this is your chance to see it as close to original as it will probably ever be unless it's brought back to original again. And, yeah, you go to lhhtours.com, and there's all the information right there. The tours are led by Josh. He gives you treasure trove of information. I add in some of my little stories like I've done here. And I think people have been, you know, we've had, what, over a 1,000 people come through in, uh, Easily. since wow. June? And, Amazing. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I haven't heard anybody say, like, whoa, that was a disappointment. I think they did. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and the biggest reason why I enjoy doing it is the look people have when they, especially when they come down those stairs. And it was even like Curtis, too. When he actually came here and he looked and he's, he's seeing the shot already that he wants. That's, that's why, and I think it was my mom had decided years ago, uh, once people were going to always be coming, you know, she said, I, I can see it. It's important to people. You know, it's important. It's, it, it, I may own it, 
but I don't really truly own it. This is a house of of the people, really, and the people need to be able to see it. I, I got to add here, too, because I've had the pleasure of reading correspondence that Betty, because she saved literally everything, uh, and the passive aggressiveness of the worldwide audience that wants to see this house was hilarious. Uh, you'd get letters from Europe. We'll be in town in November in a year. We'd love to see your house. But of course, if you don't want us to see your house, please tell us no. Don't ignore <laughs> us. It was they would they would send self-addressed stamped envelopes with a yes and a no checkbox. It was like if you didn't technically tell them no, then in their minds, I would believe that they still had a chance. And it was just this really funny passive aggressiveness. And, and that was, uh, Ken told me a story about him coming out of his bathroom one day and seeing a, a man in the stairwell. And, and, and Ken said, well, what the hell are you doing here? And the guy said, well, I was ringing the doorbell and knocking for so long. Okay, well, why are you in my house now? Because clearly I wasn't answering the door when you were ringing the doorbell and knocking. And he, he was an Italian architect. It was like, I don't care. I've got to get into this house. Your house belongs to us. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was uh, Neutra felt the same way. You know, he, he called it his house. He would come over here and he'd say, you're ruining my house because you're living in it. And, and he, he wanted it more pristine to his vision. And that's, maybe all architects are like this. They designed it. It's theirs, right? It's, it's their vision. And then some, you give it away to somebody else. And it's like you know, a painting. You, and you hope, right? You, you hope they live in it the way that, that you designed it. So where, so where can people go again to find information on the tour? That's lhhtours.com. L-H-H-T-O-U-R-S dot com. Perfect. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. I just wanted to, to relate that and, and about Janine that, that she did take care. Um, she asked, can we reupholster these things? And they and she said, well, would you? <laughs> and so, and they did. Yeah. And then when they said they were going to take, you know, what do you want? You want these? Or we can just, just oh, no, 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 leave them. And they're still here. <laughs> oh, and you know, funny enough, when I uh, moved So thank in, you, LA Confidential. <laughs> you know, and I want to thank LA Confidential because when I first moved in, I, I took over the pool house room down below and I needed blockage for the windows. And the curtains that you guys had made were still here. <laughs> and they fit perfectly. I was like, yes! <laughs> Thank you. And I, I would encourage all of you to come and check out the Level Health House up in the hills above Las Feliz. It's my first time here. It's amazing to check out. Make sure, everybody, to follow us on Facebook at On Location with Jared Cowan, on Twitter at On Location PC, and on Instagram at On Location Podcast. Uh, also, please visit us uh, on our website at onlocationpodcast.com to check out some of our other things that we've worked on, our tours, that location tours that we do. Thanks again for listening and joining us on location. And remember, dear listeners, you heard it here first, off the record, on the QT, and very hush, hush. hush.